0: Welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of The Digest. My guest today is Giorgio Capiero. Giorgio is the founder and CEO of Gulf State Analytics based in Washington. An expert on Mena affairs, a writer and an analyst, he appears frequently on Al Jazeera, TRT World, and BBC Persian. In addition to writing for Gulf State Analytics, he is a regular contributor to several outlets including The Middle East Institute, Inside Arabia, and Responsible Statecraft. Our conversation today focuses on how internal and external pressures are shaping the Gulf States and driving forward new foreign policy initiatives. Giorgio, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Bill, thank you for having me back on your show. Good to be with you.
0: And you. Now, look, I sometimes get the feeling that what the Gulf States do has become increasingly untethered from what Washington wants and expects the Gulf States to do. What do you think about that?
1: I think you're pointing to something that is pretty difficult to deny. Uh, You know, for many years, uh, it seems there's been a perspective of Gulf states as being, uh, you know, essentially U.S. puppets. But I just think that if that ever was the case, it's becoming less and less so uh, these days. You know, we've seen a trend in the Gulf region that definitely did not start uh, very recently, did not start under Trump. Um, I would argue it began at the beginning of the 21st uh, century in the aftermath of the US invasion of Iraq, which the GCC states felt was very misguided, and the Gulf states correctly forecasted that the destruction of Iraq's regime in 2003 would unleash a lot of instability throughout the wider Middle East. And I would argue that ever since then, um, Gulf states have been questioning more and more uh, what is the wisdom of relying so much on the U.S. as a security guarantor, and while um, today in 2021, there's no denying that the United States is the security guarantor for all six GCC states, there's been real effort, and you can see this taking place with each member of the GCC, an effort to diversify security economic and geopolitical relationships in a world that's becoming increasingly multipolar and you know talking to you today where we're seeing these headlines about the chief diplomat from Russia Mr. Lavrov doing his Gulf tour it's really clear that um GCC states while they intend to maintain strong ties with the United States they're definitely Operating as though it's a multipolar world and certainly working to establish uh, deeper ties with Russia, China and India.
0: Yes, it, it is very interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, there was a time when the perception was that what Washington wanted, Washington got. And the trade-off was that Washington had the backs of these Gulf states. That's really changed dramatically, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, I think that when we uh, look at some of the recent statements coming from Russian and Emirati officials that relates to the situation in Syria, this is just one uh, strong example of, you know, some of America's close partners in the GCC Uh, taking positions that are certainly at odds with what's a, you know, a bipartisan consensus in Washington on uh, an important regional issue. We see that also in Libya and other parts of the region too. Um, It's very clear that the United States is not able to always easily influence or even control the foreign policies of uh, certain GCC states I think there's a lot more balance to these relationships than there were, say, 10, 20, 30 years ago.
0: Now, of course, one area that that we really need to talk about in regard to this rebalancing that's going on, this normalization with Israel, granted, it couldn't have happened without the Trump administration, but now that Trump's off the the scene, at least temporarily, um, it seems to have an energy that's not connected with Washington. Is that because there just isn't an enthusiasm uh, within the Biden administration for the Abraham Accords, or, or is there something else going on here?
1: Well, to be clear, the Biden administration is filled with officials who are who have always been and probably always will be 100% uh, behind the Abraham Accords. It was uh, a, a rare instance of quote-unquote achievements by the Trump administration that received Support across the uh, political divide in, in Washington. Uh, there's no doubt that if more Arab and Muslim majority countries formalize diplomatic relations with Israel, that would receive the blessing of this new administration in Washington. However, it's my opinion that the Biden administration will be perhaps less focused on a quid pro quo set of arrangements driving uh, countries in the future to the Abraham Accords. Just for example, um, the Trump administration uh, had this transaction with Morocco that was in relation to the Western Sahara, and then when it came to Sudan, the Trump administration used this card about the State Department's uh, so-called State Sponsors of Terrorism list so there were a lot of cards the Trump administration played to kind of twist the arm of some of these Arab countries. Uh, we'll have to see how Biden approaches Arab-Israeli normalization, but again, I think he might not be as quid pro quoish as his predecessor. Now to your other question about whether or not there are dynamics in the region kind of unrelated to Washington that are at the heart of this normalization trend. I definitely think that's true, and I also think that was the case when Trump was in the White House. No doubt his presidency was very unique and created certain circumstances which uh, made the Abraham Accords take place. That said, even if we never had the Trump presidency, it's pretty clear that the UAE and Israel were moving close closer and closer. Uh, Going back to the the 2010s, the 2000s, we started seeing more and more synergy between the UAE and Israel and a partnership that was strengthening, albeit uh, tacitly and unofficially. A major factor was the concerns about Iranian influence expanding and consolidating in Arab countries. This takes us back to the aftermath of the fall of Iraq's regime in 2003. We saw Iran uh, beginning to play a much more assertive role in Iraq and by extension the rest of the Arab region, and that was one of the geopolitical dynamics that definitely began pushing Abu Dhabi and Tel Aviv closer to each other. Then under Obama, the Emiratis and Israelis, also uh, the Bahrainis and the Israelis, had Huge concerns about how Obama was dealing with the perceived threat that Iran poses. Um, Obviously, there was the signing of the JCPOA, uh, perceptions that Obama was not doing enough to counter Iran inside Syria, other places too. That definitely did a lot to push the Emiratis and Israel closer together. And now with Biden in the White House, I think there's a good chance that some of those concerns, which were very much uh, shared between the UAE and Israel during the Obama period, are going to become uh, relevant again.
0: Yeah, that that's very interesting, isn't it? Because Biden, you know, pushing hard on JCPOA, possibly JCPOA two point zero, who knows? But but the Israelis uh, are really strongly. Uh, worried, concerned about just how eagerly Biden wants that return. And the fear is that he will not push on the restraining of the ballistic missile potential. And of course, the Emiratis have their concerns as well. So you get the sense that that, that Washington may be prepared to give up too much to get the United States back into the JCPOA.
1: Yeah, now I personally have some doubts about the future of the JCPOA that we're now in March of 2021 and the new administration has not brought um, the U.S. back to the nuclear accord. Also, given the fact that this summer there's going to be this presidential election in Iran, which could easily be won by a very hardline anti-American figure in the Islamic Republic, which would definitely result in new conditions where it's much more difficult to salvage the JCPOA. Um, so I, I I do have my doubts about the future of this nuclear accord, but you're absolutely right that in Abu Dhabi, in Israel, also in Riyadh and Manama too, there are real concerns that Biden will successfully salvage the JCPOA. And, you know, the concern, uh, as these capitals see it, is that this will— help Iran sort of integrate into the region and the rest of the world uh, more officially. Iran will slowly lose its pariah status and Iran will feel emboldened and continue engaging, well, engage more and more in conduct that uh, these countries we've been mentioning view as very, very destabilizing.
0: Yeah, well, you mentioned Riyadh as well, and that's a good point, because I'm just wondering, with this normalization process of course, we've got the UAE on board, Bahrain. Is it possible that Saudi Arabia, again, because of anxieties over the Biden administration, would would move towards normalization?
1: It's certainly possible, but I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, Saudi Arabia... Has a very special role in the wider Islamic world. There's a lot of soft power that comes with the ruler of Saudi Arabia officially being the custodian of the two holy mosques. There are many pan Islamic institutions that are uh, de facto Saudi run institutions. And for the Saudis to formalize diplomatic relations with Israel themselves, I think would just simply be seen as too risky the same time, there are elements within Saudi Arabia that would not support that development, including from figures within the royal family. And, you know, given these regional and domestic risks, I don't think the Saudi government would make that move. Having said that, there is a growing partnership between Saudi Arabia and Israel that I think is very, very similar to the relationship that the UAE and Israel had from basically 2006 up until the period right before the Abraham Accords were announced last year, where there's growing cooperation in a number of domains and there are... Uh, interests that align on regional issues, but still not a formalized relationship. If I had to put my money on it, I would say that that's probably going to be the future of Saudi-Israeli relations for at least many years to come.
0: Now, Now, what about Oman? Because the Omanis must be tempted to come on board because there are clearly economic gains to be had with normalization, but to do so would compromise their cherished policy of neutrality, and that's kept them out of several messes, including the war in Yemen and the great Gulf feud with Qatar. What do you think the Omanis are thinking about normalization?
1: I think it's important to see this in a little bit of a historical context. Back in the late 1970s, when Egypt became the first Arab state to formalize diplomatic relations with Israel, Egypt became quite isolated in the Arab world, yet Oman was one of only three Arab League members that always opposed uh, punishing Egypt for its decision to normalize relations with Israel. It's a history of Israeli foreign minister, excuse me, Israeli prime ministers visiting Oman. Uh, that most recently took place in October 2018 when Netanyahu came to Muscat. So there definitely is uh, some goodwill between the Omanis and Israelis, and there's some very pragmatic engagement between Oman and the Jewish state. I think that's going to continue throughout the future. Having said that, I don't think Oman is going to abandon the Arab Peace Initiative and formalize diplomatic ties with Israel as the UAE and Bahrain did last year. You know, the Omanis are very principled in their foreign policy decision-making, and to Muscat, the Arab peace initiative is important. As a matter of principle, the Palestinian issue matters significantly, and while Oman would, you know, definitely uh, embrace an opportunity to normalize diplomatic relations with Israel if and only if the Israelis return to the 1967 lines and give the Palestinians a state with East Jerusalem. I think officials in Oman know that that's not going to happen anytime soon. And thus, it seems likely that we're going to see uh, Oman and Israel uh, engage each other through an unofficial relationship, one that is not formalized like the UAE Israel relationship. Also, geopolitically, there is an Iranian factor that we need to consider. Uh, Ever since the GCC was established in the early 1980s, Oman has always been and remains the member of this institution that is most sensitive to Iran's uh, security concerns uh, the Iranians definitely view the normalization of the UAE and Bahrain's relations with Israel as a direct threat to Tehran. Oman um, is, you know, a country that has a, a neutral foreign policy. It plays a balancing role in the Middle East, and that's made possible in large part through Oman's warm and positive relationship with Iran. And therefore, I think if the Omanis were to join the Abraham Accords, that could create some friction between Muscat and Tehran, which the new Omani leadership has absolutely no interest in creating, especially at uh, this very sensitive period of time in the region.
0: Now, I I mentioned the Gulf Feud, which finally, after more than three years, uh, came to an end at Al-Ula in Saudi Arabia. Is this a case of cracks papered over, or has the GCC, unlike Humpty Dumpty, been put back together again?
1: I think the states that were blockading Qatar began seeing the blockade as less and less useful. It was a major case of diminishing returns. There was also a desire to take... Set of actions to buy some goodwill with the new U.S. administration that came to power the same month as the Al Ula summit. And there's also a belief in uh, Riyadh and some of the other capitals that cut off their relations with Doha in 2017 that in order to deal with the Iranian threat, it's better for the GCC to be less divided so i think these circumstances help us ex- excuse me let's also add covid-19 to the list of factors and i think these are the variables which were in the equation at al ula but to this important point there is still much ideological division polarization and a lack of trust in the gcc there is a concept of Gulf Arab unity which exists only on, on paper. Um, the Al-Ula summit did not turn that into a reality. So, you know, the these fundamental questions about whether or not GCC states should support Islamist power centers that emerged in the post-Arab Spring setting, I mean, Doha and Abu Dhabi are very far from being on the same page about that question. And that was one of the fundamental differences that led to the GCC crisis in 2017. So, you know, those problems are still there. I think a real test is going to be uh, to what extent are the parties going to be able to sort of agree to disagree. I think we need a little more time to see that. And I also don't think we should assume that all the blockading states are on the same page. Uh, For sure, Saudi Arabia still has grave, uh, really serious problems with aspects of Qatar's policies, but the Saudis seem to be pretty interested in reconciling with Doha. I think when we're looking at the UAE and Bahrain, it's a different story. I think those states see reconciliation with Qatar as far lower of a priority than the Saudis do.
0: Yeah, well, as you suggest, that the the JCPOA, the, the the looming possibility of America coming back in again, uh, being something of a glue to to help pull the GCC back together. But I'm just wondering, do you think that Qatar could play um, a role, a significant role? I know that the Omani did in, in, in the first uh, enactment of the JCPOA, but do you see Qatar perhaps coming in and playing uh, some kind of role? Because, of course, they have the Taliban there, for example. They have this uh, reputation as negotiators. Uh, what do you think?
1: Yeah, you know, there are a handful of countries in the world, maybe five, six, seven countries, that many people are expecting to play a role as a facilitator of dialogue between the U.S. and Iran and Qatar, and also Oman, as you mentioned, are two of those countries. I think um, Oman's experience and the special relationship between Muscat and Tehran might make Oman more of a realistic uh, diplomatic bridge between the Biden administration and the Islamic Republic. But Qatar certainly has a role to play in um, getting the new leadership in Washington and Iranian officials to start engaging in serious talks. You know, the Qataris grew much more reliant on Iran as a consequence of the 2017 to 2021 blockade. And therefore, the maximum pressure campaign, which the Trump administration pursued, created major dilemmas for Qatar, uh, a country that's geographically close to Iran and has deepening It had ties that deepened with Iran throughout the blockade, but also is an important partner of the U.S. and is ultimately dependent on the U.S. and to a lesser extent Turkey for its own security. So it would make sense that Qatar would like to see a future in which the tensions between the U.S. and Iran can begin to cool. It would um, enable Qatar to operate in an environment that would be a little easier to deal with from Doha's perspective.
0: Mm, so perhaps an opportunity there, but I suppose too the Omanis and the Qatuis would get into something of an arm wrestle to see who would be playing the bridge role.
1: I think there's no competition between Oman and Qatar for uh, this role. The Omanis would welcome Qatar uh, taking actions that help lower temperatures and, and vice versa. But I don't think that Oman would ever, ever challenge Qatar if um, Qatar were to step up and take some bold moves to play this bridging role.
0: Finally, all the GCC states, but most particularly Saudi Arabia, what is the minimum that will make them feel that their security is not compromised by the United States returning to a JCPOA or a JCPOA plus?
1: Well, these countries' main concerns about Iran are not about Iran's nuclear program. I'm not saying that that's not a concern at all, it's just, it's not the top concern. What really makes officials in Riyadh and Abu Dhabi view Iran as a danger has to do with Iran's foreign policy throughout the region and uh, ballistic missile activity. It's these non-nuclear issues that are the heart of their view of the Islamic Republic as a predatory state. Now, these countries want, at least what they're claiming, is that they want a nuclear deal, but they want non nuclear issues brought into it. Uh, you know, issues such as Iran's support for Hezbollah in Lebanon, ties between Tehran and the Houthi rebellion, also the activities of Iranian backed non state actors in Iraq and Syria. And I don't think that Iran would ever sign or what, you know, you, you called it possibly JCPOA 2.0, if it includes all of these non-nuclear issues. I think the Iranians will definitely, they would definitely sit down uh, with the Gulf Arabs or uh, officials from Western governments and engage in dialogue on regional issues and uh, perhaps make some concessions on um, issues in the Middle East. I think probably in Yemen is where they would make their first concessions. But... I really, really doubt that Iran would sign another nuclear accord that brings these non-nuclear issues into it. And unless that happens, I I don't see the leadership in Riyadh or Abu Dhabi being comfortable with the JCPOA as it existed in 2015, um, sort of regaining its legitimacy.
0: Yeah, and I suppose, too, the the sunset clause, that was another area of anxiety, wasn't it? And and the push would be to extend that sun, sunset clause much further. And as you say, the kind of hesitation from Biden thus far, uh, despite expressing very strongly that, you know, he wants to bring America back in that all, I'm sure makes uh, Abu Dhabi and Riyadh a little mm-hmm. nervous.
1: Absolutely. They uh, were supporters of Trump's maximum pressure campaign, And the idea of Biden uh, easing that pressure is certainly a big concern. They worry that this would result in Iran feeling emboldened. And uh, from their perspective, the U.S. should avoid actions that result in that outcome.
0: Giorgio, thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Bill. It's always great to be with you.
0: You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Giorgio Cafiero founder and CEO of Gulf State Analytics. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of 10 pounds a month or 100 pounds per year. And for academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on arabdigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, Editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.